Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Well, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, and I'm reading from verse 13 to the end of the chapter. If you're using one of the Black Church Bibles, page 808, 808 in the Black Bibles, or 960, 960 in large print. You'll find space for notes on page 6, should you want to do so as we listen Listen to God's Word together. The wise men, verse 12, warned in a dream not to return to Herod, departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Amen. I want this morning, as we begin, to let you into a little secret, and it's this. Sometimes commentaries on the Bible can do the preacher more harm than good. And here's, here's the problem. <clears throat> if a commentary, <clears throat> excuse me, if a commentary in my, in my study, if a commentary in my study can do me harm preparing to preach, then it's very possible that I would pass that harm on to you. Sometimes commentaries do more harm, than, more harm than good. 
Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23, the passage we've just read is a commentary writer's dream, and yet what they write becomes a preacher's nightmare. So here's why. If you look at the passage again, you'll see three simple headings. The flight to Egypt, Herod kills the children, and the return to Nazareth. It It is a simple story. And yet, nearly every single commentator out there loses the wood for the trees. For here's what commentators are interested in. How and why and what is Matthew doing with with his three Old Testament fulfillment quotations? Did you spot them? Verse 15, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Hosea chapter 11 verse 1. That's what the commentaries are interested in. What is Matthew doing in saying that this is a fulfillment of Hosea? Verse 17, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a quote from Jeremiah chapter 31. And here's the one that really sets the cat among the pigeons. Verse 23, he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. There is no Old Testament prophecy predicting that the Messiah would be called a Nazarene. Commentaries can do more harm than good. And so what I want to do this morning, instead of following all the people that I read this week, and you'll be glad you won't hear about them again, I want instead to point you to one of the places in the Bible where the Bible itself comments on Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23. I I want us this morning to swap out most of the modern commentators for the Bible's own commentary on this passage. So I want to give you two points this morning. I want to give you an application with each of the two points, an application for our minds, and then I'm going to give us at the end four applications for our hearts. Two applications for our minds, four for our hearts. Here are the two points. Number one, I want us this morning to see behind the scenes. I want us to see behind the scenes. Jesus is the champion in the war of every age. See behind the scenes, number one. Jesus is the champion in the war of every age. Number two, I want us to see inside the patterns. Jesus is the hero in a story on repeat. Number two, see inside the patterns. Jesus is the hero in a story on repeat. For here is what the Bible itself asks us this morning, friends. When we read that text together, What can you see? What did you see in the text? Can you see what the Bible can see? Do you remember this poem? I know I've given this to you before. There's a dragon in my nativity, dreadful and immense. The shepherds quake, the wise men wake, and spill their frankincense. There's a dragon by the stable. I don't know why he's there. He hasn't brought a present, and he only seems to glare. He hovers over David's town that still beneath him lies. Yet no one's sleep is dreamless. 
beneath the dragon's piercing eyes. Can you see the dragon in Matthew chapter 2? I want you to turn forward to the book of Revelation chapter 12. Keep your finger in Matthew 2. It's where we're going to come back to in just a moment. But turn forward to Revelation chapter 12, page 1034. I'll keep taking on water while you find your, your page. Revelation chapter 12, here is the Bible's own commentary on our passage this morning. Here is an imaginative way to understand the story of Matthew 2 and the story of the world and, and how to find yourself in the story of the world. Revelation chapter 12, John says, I want you to imagine this dragon isn't visible with ordinary sight. You cannot snap a selfie or televise his flight. Revelation chapter 12, and a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. And she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Friends, in Revelation chapter 12, John John is pulling back the curtains of reality. He is seeing behind the scenes John is telling us this morning that the story of the world is the story of the evil of the devil against the goodness of God. The story of the world is a clash of kingdoms, a clash of darkness against light. And you and I are in that fight today, friends. Or or you are in it, whether you know it or not. We've told our children for years, you have to kill the dragon you have to kill the dragon. You will spend your life fighting him. And you have to kill him because he wants to kill you. This is a brilliant way, Revelation 12, a brilliant way to tell the story of the whole Bible. Just look with me at what John sees. He sees two signs in heaven. He sees a woman and he sees a great red dragon. Now, now, this this dragon, if you look at verse 9, Revelation 12, verse 9, we're not left to our imaginations about who this is. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So that the the sign of the dragon has has a reality behind it, doesn't it? Devil, Satan, the one who deceives the whole world. 
But friends, look, here's the beauty of the Bible. Look at this woman in verse 1. Look at this woman in verse 1. She is clothed with the sun, but she's standing on the moon, and she has 12 stars on her head. What a picture! What a woman! Who is this woman? Do you remember what God said to the dragon at the very start of the Bible? Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Do you remember God addressed the serpent, Satan, the devil, the dragon? Remember what he said? I will put enmity, I will put warfare. Warfare between who? You and the woman. The woman. I will put enmity between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall strike his heel. You know, friends, it is an amazing thing. Don't, don't ever think that the Bible story only has men as the principal actors. No, the Bible story is the woman's offspring against the dragon's offspring. That is the story of the Bible. It's, it's why John reach, reaches for this, this picture here in Revelation chapter 12. In verses 4 and 5, it, it's obviously a picture of Mary giving birth to Jesus, isn't it? Mary giving birth to Jesus, the dragon waiting to devour her, and yet this woman is more than Mary, isn't she? Look at verse 17, the end of the chapter. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Mary giving birth to Jesus has, if I can put it this way, Mary has morphed into more than Mary. You you see, in the Old Testament, the the sun, the moon, and the stars, all of those those planets in in the sky, the sun, the moon, and the stars became a picture for the people of God as a whole. That the sun, the moon, and the stars are a picture of the church. They're a picture of Eve and her offspring as a whole, all together. All of Eve's offspring from Genesis 3 onwards. You can can look this up, Genesis chapter 37. Joseph has a dream, and he dreams that his mother, his father, and his brothers are the sun, the moon, and the stars. His father, Jacob, remember, the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. You see what John is doing with this woman in, John, in Revelation 12, verse 1? He's saying, here is a picture of Israel, God's people. And he's imagining God's people through the ages as a magnificent woman, as a bride. And from the dawn of time right down until now, she has been locked in conflict with the great deceiver, the one who is out to destroy God's people. And at the same time, all along, what has God promised? that from this one woman, from Israel, from his people will come who? A child, a serpent killer who will bruise the serpent's head. See, verse 4 of Revelation 12, it's a picture of Mary giving birth to the Lord Jesus, but, but only giving birth to him because she is part of Israel that the people of God who, who have always birthed offspring while Satan tries to destroy them. It's the story of the Bible, isn't it? Who does Pharaoh, the serpent, strike in Egypt? The offspring of the woman, the boys. Every, 
male born to the Israelites cast into the, into the Nile, and yet God saves one child, Moses. Matthew chapter 2, who is Herod the serpent striking? The offspring, the offspring of the woman, the boys, all male children in Bethlehem under the age of two slaughtered, and yet God saves his son, the child. Look at verse 5, Revelation 12, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron but her child was caught up to God and his son. God saves his son. Verse 5 is, is an amazing condensing of the whole story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. It's all there in one verse. He's caught up to heaven. He's safe. Jesus is in heaven, and the woman, the church, the people of God that birthed him into the world, they remain down here in the wilderness. See, see, friends, this morning, John is reading Matthew chapter 2. He's looking at Herod and what Herod is doing, and he's pulling back the curtains. He's seeing behind the scenes. I want to ask you this morning, what do you see on Christmas Eve when Mary writhes in agony in childbirth and the Messiah enters the world? What, what can you see just them in the stable, Mary, Joseph, the oxen standing by? Is that all you can see? Or can you see the dragon crouching as Herod prepares to send his special forces into the night? Hark, the herald angels sing, a dragon waits to eat our king. Silent night, holy night, hell and heaven meet to fight. This dragon is an enemy of all that's good and true. This monster lies and steals and kills. He's coming after you. Unseen, he stands for every power that stands against the earth of death, disease, and darkness, overshadowing each birth. Friends, here's application number one for our minds this morning. Do you only look at the world? Or do you know how to see behind the scenes? I want to ask you this morning, do you know how not just to look at the world, but to see through the world, to see behind the scenes? Everybody looks, everybody reads the news. But take Matthew and Revelation together, only God's people really see. Only God's people really see. Think back a couple of years. What, what did the world look at when, when Vladimir Putin sent his tanks into Ukraine? What, what did the world see? Carnage, destruction. And as he did so, the church in Ukraine broken into a thousand tiny pieces. Isn't that right? The tanks enter and the church is broken apart, scattered. Congregations dissolved. Pastors find their sheep now scattered throughout all the nations of the earth. And as we look, friends, can you see the dragon crouching, waiting, 
wanting to destroy and to, to consume the offspring of the woman, to swallow the church whole and be done with her forever. Our oh, friends, the world calls them dictators, but God's people learn to call them dragons, the offspring of the dragon. Can you see this morning? But now number two, Number two, see inside the pattern. See inside the pattern. Not just see behind the scenes. See inside the pattern. Here's what I want to show you. The Lord Jesus is the hero in a story that is on repeat. The Lord Jesus is the hero in a story that's on repeat. Have Matthew 2 in front of you again. Matthew 2 is the story of the Bible on repeat. It's not just that there's a dragon always trying to destroy the seed of the woman, but so too all the great events of Israel's history. Her story is all repeated here in Matthew chapter 2. Matthew wants us to see not just that Jesus is the champion in the war of every age, but he's the hero in a story that's on repeat. Now, 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 what do I mean by that, a story that's on repeat? I, I think there are some stories that we just love hearing over and over again, aren't there? Children are like that. Children beg, not for new stories, but their favorite stories, the same story again. Say, read it again, Dad. You, you will have favorite episodes of something, I guess, something that you love to watch over and over. You've watched it so many times that you know the script of the whole episode, what is the Old Testament story? Israel, God's people, away from the land of promise in Egypt as slaves, and God rescues them. That's the story, isn't it? He, he rescues them by saving a deliverer from death while Pharaoh is slaughtering all the male children all around him. And God rescues Israel, his son, by reaching down and pulling them out of Egypt. He rescues his son out of Egypt in the Exodus. And then what happens? The people of God are exiled from that land because of their sin. They, they go through it all over again. They go in, into Babylon, a land of captivity, and then God rescues them again. That's the story, isn't it? The story of the Old Testament. Well, what is Matthew saying to us in, in chapter 2? He's saying, see inside the patterns. Here is the story on repeat again. Look at verse 14. Where do the people, where does the child and his mother and Joseph, true Israel, faithful Israel, the child, the Messiah, where do they go? Into Egypt, the land of slavery. And out of Egypt all over again, God reaches in and pulls the Messiah out of Egypt, just like he did in the Old Testament. You see, th this is what we can call theological geography. Theological geography. Out of Egypt I called my son. Look at verse 17 and 18. This is an incredible verse. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice <clears throat> was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. See, this, this is a quote from Jeremiah chapter 31, 31 verse 15. And it's a verse that is promising the end of the exile. 
See, if you look at verse 18, by the time of the prophet Jeremiah, friends, Rachel is long dead. Long dead. Rachel, the wife of Jacob, the mother of Joseph and Benjamin, a matriarch in Israel. Revelation 12, a mother in Israel who, who birthed the nation. And she's not actually weeping in Jeremiah 31, 15. She's long dead. And yet, Jeremiah looks at these people crying, people in, in exile crying, and he, he, he says, Rachel is, let, let me put it like this, he says, it's, it's, as if, it's as if we should imagine a great mother in Israel crying out as she now can see God's people carried off into slavery and exile again. It's a poetic way of imagining a great mother in Israel. Rachel, who died in childbirth, she never got to hold Benjamin. It's a way of imagining her weeping now, imagining her offspring removed from the land and being no more. But listen to the very next verse in Jeremiah 31. You have Jeremiah 31, verse 15. It's printed for you in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 2. But now listen to the next verse in Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping. Keep your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. The, the days of crying are over. Friends, can you see the pattern? God's people enslaved, then rescued. God's people exiled, then rescued. God's people brutalized through the centuries. Blood flows in the streets and then rescue. He sends a hero, a deliverer, a champion, a rescuer. See, in Matthew's gospel chapter 2, Israel is weeping all over again, just like Israel wept in Ex Exodus chapter 1 with the boys drowned in the Nile, just like in Jeremiah 31. And then we get verse 19. But, but, when Herod died, do you see it? Keep your voice from weeping, keep your eyes from tears, for the dragon is dead and the child lives. The child lives. It's interesting, isn't it, in our passage this morning, all the way through, Jesus is just called the child the child. It's, it, it's a narrative detail that's just meant to say there is something special about this boy. The child with his mother. He's, he's never called Joseph's son. He, he's called God's son in verse 15. It's all pointing us to the fact that this child is special. This child is different. In a story on repeat, he is going to be the difference. He's going to be the hero. But when Herod died, but dragons always meet their match, they always meet their doom, a hero rises to the fight to cast them into gloom. And so at this nativity arose another player, the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. He was a dragon slayer. From high above and long before, he knew what must be done. He knew just what was waiting here, and still he chose to come. There's a dragon in my nativity, a fierce and monstrous danger, but fiercer still the bravery 
and love within the manger. Friends, here's the second application for our minds this morning. History is not random. History is not chaotic. It is not haphazard. If you log on to your BBC News channel, wherever you get your news from, follow the news through a simple week, never mind through a year, and you and I will discern no pattern to world events. It looks a mess, doesn't it? Chaos on every hand. No, Matthew is saying to us, can you see here, friends, in all the events of world history that God is ruling and reigning? God is ruling and reigning. He's reigning over the events of world history. The hearts of the kings are in His hand. He moves His people to where He wants them to be and when He wants them to be there. Here's the principle that the providence of God reaches to all creatures. There is nothing and no one in all the world he doesn't oversee, but in a most special manner, God takes care of his people. He takes care of his people in world history. Think of Idi Amin in Uganda, Pol Pot in Cambodia. Oh, the carnage that they wreaked! Oh, the devastation. The dragon rears his head, breathes his fire. Ukraine today with the church in ruins. Who knows how the story will end except we know this, God will take care of His people. There is only one story, friends, on repeat. There is only one story. God's people in the world rescued by their Messiah now heading to glory through the years of wilderness. That is the story. I like to put it like this, one day, one day all of world history will be shown to be church history. Do you know that? One day all of world history will be shown to be church history. For all the affairs of kings and men and nations and powers, it will all fall at Jesus' feet. All of it will serve to show Him as head and king over all. Oh, that is what God is doing here, writing the story of history. His Messiah is safe. His people are with Him. I want to finish with this. Here's four applications. Four applications and we're done. These are brief. These are all from J.C. Ryle, Bishop Ryle. Those of you who've been here a while, you know I love J.C. Ryle, the Bishop of Liverpool. Back in the days when you could trust bishops, trust bishops to care for their sheep, protect their flocks. Application number one, Ryle says this, how true it is that the rulers of this world are seldom friendly to the cause of Christ. Isn't that true? How true it is that the rulers of this world are seldom friendly to the cause of Christ in this world. The King of heaven comes down to earth to save sinners And as he does so, at once, Herod the king tries to destroy him. Greatness and riches are a perilous possession for the soul. Isn't it true? We so often think that the gospel will advance if the rich and the famous believe it. If only the rich and the famous could believe it, then the gospel would spread. 
But of course, what happens with greatness and riches? You make yourself king. Herod shows us what happens when you, you refuse to accept that you are not king, that there is another king. J.C. Ryle, do we think that Christ's cause depends on the power and patronage of princes? No, we are mistaken. Power and princes have seldom done much for the advancement of the gospel. They have far more frequently been the enemies of the truth. Psalm 146, put not your trust in princes, for there are many, many who are like Herod. Second application, friends, be patient and faithful. Be courageous when the dragon, when the dragon rages most intensely against the gospel. Here's what, here's what Ryle says, for look how death removes the kings of the earth like other men. Verse 19, but when Herod died. Oh, friends, be patient. Be faithful. Be courageous when the dragon rages most intensely against the gospel. For look how death removes the kings of the earth like other men. What has become of the pharaohs and the Neros now? who at one time fiercely persecuted the people of God? Where is the hatred of Charles IX of France and Bloody Mary of, of England? They did their utmost to cast the truth down to the ground, but the truth rose again from the earth and still lives, and they are dead, moldering in the grave. Let not the heart of any believer fail. Death is a mighty leveler. Death can remove any mountain out of the way of Christ's church. His enemies are only men. The truth shall always prevail. Application number three. I want us this morning to worship the Lord Jesus, our champion, our hero. I want us to worship him for the greatness of his humility. Do you see his humility in this passage? I wonder what you would expect for the true heir to Herod's throne, the great hero who saves his people from their sins, that child in Revelation 12, the one who will rule all the nations with a rod of iron, the son of David, the son of Abraham. What do you expect him to be like? Do you see how our passage ends this morning? Matthew wants us to know he is called a Nazarene. In fact, that is the only, the only name given to Jesus in the passage. The only name given to Jesus is a Nazarene. Do you remember Nathaniel, John chapter 1? Can anything good come from Nazareth? I, I was trying to think of the equivalent, equivalent place out in the Shire, and I'm not going to name any places lest I offend somebody in the room. It's, the, it's that sense of from there, that, that place. No, no, nothing's ever come from there. This is the sense from Old Testament prophets like Zechariah or Isaiah that the Messiah, when he comes, will be despised and rejected, held to be of no account. 
that he would be a non-entity person from a non-entity place. The king from heaven comes to be like that, a person of no account from a place of no significance. Oh, can we feel the wonder? And here, here, here's Bishop Ryle's last application, number four. He says this, faithful shepherd that he was. I imagine him looking out on his congregation like I look out on you this morning, and he says this, many of us this morning are carrying sorrows untold. We're carrying sorrows untold. Observe how the Lord Jesus in this passage was a man of sorrows even from his infancy. A man of sorrows even from his infancy. Trouble awaits him as soon as he enters into the world. His life from his first breath is in danger from Herod's hatred. His mother and father, Joseph, are obliged to take him away by night and flee into Egypt. This was simply a foretaste of all of his experience upon earth. The waves of humiliation began to beat over him, even when he was a suckling child. Oh, friends, the Lord Jesus is just the Savior, just the Savior that the suffering and the sorrowful need. He knows well what we mean when we cry out to Him in prayer that we are in trouble. Help me, Lord. He can sympathize with us when we cry to Him under cruel persecution. And so Bishop Ryle says, and I say to you this morning, let us keep nothing back from Him. Let us make Him our closest friend. Let us pour out our hearts before Him, for He too has had great experience of affliction. The Lord Jesus, the child, the King, our Savior. Amen.